I'm on, I guess. This, this group gets away quickly. Well, I'm waiting for Grant to finish. All right. I believe you. Those of you who are at home, we're having a conversation with Grant right now about burials here in Utah. That's Grant laughing. All right, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. We'll sing the Word of God set to music. Really simple, easy passage today. Sit in silence for a minute and come back and continue our verse by verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Finish that and then chapter 8. There's going to be it's some interesting stuff today, so let's pray. Lord, we just uh, ask, this, ask for you to take this uh, meeting where we're gathered together here in the church studio and those people who are at home watching and who will turn into the archives later. We pray your spirit will be with all of us and help us to know your truth. We want to be liberated from uh, deception and from lies and from darkness, from the bondage of our flesh and the things that easily beset us. We want to be free to the nuance of your spirit. And we know that as we walk around in this life, we, we are flesh and, and blood and bones and we, we have desires and we have will and we have ways, but we know that when this body goes into the ground, we will be yours completely. So we're preparing our spirits now for that. Help us to do it. Forgive us for our uh, error of thought and redirect us if you would. So be with us now as we consider your uh, Word set to music, in Jesus' name, amen. One, two, three, four. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. to you love 
Okay, we left off with Paul saying a, a hefty passage last week. Verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. After they, the saints had shown that they had loved and they had listened to Paul and they had followed his advice on how to handle a problem in the church, he says, For behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And we covered that whole passage and talked about what it could possibly mean then. If you want to know, go back and check it out. And this leads us to the remainder of chapter 7. And then, if you can believe it, we're going to get into chapter 8, about the first eight verses. And they're going to bring some interesting things to us uh, once we get to it. So, the reason Paul uses this space here is to do a lot of talking about Titus and the believers that were at Corinth. Now, most of it has very little impact on us today. It's almost like this side conversation he is bringing in that really has to deal with the church then. So we're going to move through it pretty quickly. Uh, at verse 12, Paul continues to speak to the church there at Corinth about Titus, about them, and his own feelings toward them. And he says at verse 12, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceeding more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. You know, when I read this stuff from here, and when I read it just myself, it is just so... What? Especially in the King James. It just is. You have to almost, you have to go really slow to make, understand it. He goes on, verse 14, 15, and 16, For I have boasted anything of him of you. Excuse me. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you, whilst he remember the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Now, this is wrapping up uh, chapter 7, our chapter 7. Paul is preparing his viewer, his viewers, <laughs> his listeners, to hear what he's going to give next in chapter 8. So all of that is kind of a build-up to what he's going to say next. So go back to verse 12. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. So Paul is talking about a problem in the church. I think he's talking about the guy who was... Uh, he mentions in 1 Corinthians, who was sleeping with his father's wife. That's the only source we have of the problem that he gave them insight on, was, look, you've got to handle this problem this way. This son is with his father's wife. That is forbidden because it's going to bring corruption into the bride. You've got to handle it this way. And he's been waiting to see if they would 
do what he says. And then he learns from Titus that they did. They listened to his advice. Last week, Ray pointed out that there is a, a, a lost book of Corinthians, we think. Some think that that lost book was combined into one of the Corinthians. Others think that it's lost. And there could be another problem that Paul is speaking of. But because we don't have that book, if it was lost, I'm just going to say that he's speaking to their reaction to the man who was with his father's wife inappropriately. And the advice was, you guys have to do this. So when Paul says, wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that had suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you, he is referring to a problem. And because our only evidence of a problem in the scripture is 1 Corinthians with the guy sleeping with his dad's wife, that is the one I'm thinking he's talking about. Could be wrong. But Paul says, I'm not writing to you because of his wrong. And I'm not writing to you on that behalf of the person who was wronged. I'm writing to you because I want you to know our care for you in the sight of God. That's the whole point of that verse. Then he says, therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. And you remember from last week that Titus went and visited them. Titus was received by them. Titus was encouraged by them, by their listening to Paul. And so when Titus went to Macedonia and met Paul, he shared with Paul what was happening there at Corinth, and Paul rejoiced, and Titus rejoiced. For if I, verse 14, have boasted anything of him of you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found in truth. Again, the King James, slow it down and read each word, check out the other versions in Greek, and Paul has mentioned Titus here. I think he's referencing Titus and he seems to be saying, I boasted of the character of you believers at Corinth and I am not ashamed for having done that. I did it in truth and you've proven it to be true. Or as Paul says, but as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found in truth. I was telling Titus, these guys really are great. They're true believers. These women and men, they really are good. And now Titus has found that out himself. I'm not ashamed that I boasted of you. I boasted in truth. Verse 15. And his inward affection, Titus's, is more abundant toward you while he remembered the obedience of you all and how with fear and trembling you received him. Okay, again, pretty self-explanatory. Titus was even more apprehensive, appreciative, not apprehensive. He was appreciative of them in his affections, Paul adds, because they received him on his visit, Paul says, with fear and trembling. Now, uh, as an aside, I've recently revisited a book I've read a couple times, and I just went back and looked at some of the uh, notes of it that are online. And it's a book by Soren Kierkegaard. He's the father of Christian uh, existentialism, you, whatever you want to call that. And he wrote a book called Fear and Trembling. 
And uh, it was taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians, where it says at verse 12 and 13, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so Kierkegaard, he takes that line, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and he wrote a 200-page book about this concept of human beings working out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Kierkegaard's the guy who said we have to make a leap of faith. So he's not talking about our earning our salvation or working it out um, by, man, I'm going to do this much because I know that this will save me. Uh, Kierkegaard, he goes and he talks about the Abrahamic sacrifice where Abraham loves God and follows God, but God tells him something that was a pagan practice and contradictory to what he believed, and that was go sacrifice your son on an altar. And so Kierkegaard goes into a long aphoristic talk. He's super smart. And one line will blow your mind from Kierkegaard. And he just talks about what this means to love God so much and want to do right so much that you're willing to go and do something that is truly causes fear and trembling. Kierkegaard explores this idea that it's not our faith that causes us to do that. It's what's right. And I know this is just a side philosophical argument, but his thing is you walk through your life and you do what is right. And that is what causes you to move into action and help you work out your salvation for fear and trembling. And the reason he does, does this, he fell in love with a woman named Regina Love of his life, only love of his life, truly, devoutly in love with her. And he turned from her and a relationship with her as his wife, as his uh, as her husband, because he felt I can't serve God completely with a wife. So for him, it was an Abrahamic sacrifice and he lived with the pain of that. And so that story gets mingled in with his study of Abraham and Isaac. And he comes to this idea of fear and trembling. I can't overstate the importance of the fact that all human beings, we choose to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Kierkegaard so aptly replies. I am committed to that idea that, but we had a show last week and I talked about this where, uh, to me, the salvation is given to us by faith through grace, period like a cult is given to us. And then we take that cult out into the, whatever they call it, corral, and daily we work that cult out with fear and trembling in the sight of God, knowing that that cult needs to learn and be disciplined and grow and choose God's will over his own, et cetera, et cetera. So the salvation's a gift when he says that. Now that you have the gift, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I think it's important. There's a humility that comes with that and, um, and uh, it causes you not to try to cut corners with God. It, it causes you to kind of enter into the fire. So, uh, of course, the thing that is absent in that title of work out your salvation with fear and trembling that Kierkegaard pulled from is the following verse where Paul adds for 
It is God which works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So we have kind of in our world this uh, conflict because on the one hand, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he adds to the idea of work out for it is God who works in you. And he balances the whole thing for us. We aren't earning it. We aren't the ones who are doing it. We're stepping back and getting out of the way so God in us can do what he needs to to bring about that uh, saved cult, so to speak. And, and so it's a choice of submitting and being willing to sacrifice our will to his. And uh, Kierkegaard suggests it's a philosophical decision and not a theological position of faith. So, uh, but the thing that, that's important to understand is, as this side issue is about to end, um, we aren't doing the labors. We are stepping back so God can do the labors in us. And that's where religions will step in and say, you need to, you need to do the labors to you know, maintain your faith, to get your faith, to make sure you don't lose your faith. And that's not what Paul was saying there when he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yield to the Spirit, not produce yield of works. Maybe you could put it that way. Anyway, chapter 7 ends at verse 16, where he says, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Now, thus far, Paul, what he's done, and I'm, this is kind of crass. Sorry, Paul. God, don't get mad at me. But he, this is kind of a sales pitch, in a way. If you want to be worldly about it, you could think of it in much better terms, I'm sure. But it's the old, uh, really build confidence in someone before you throw the goal on them. Because in chapter 8, in the first eight verses, we're going to read what his goal is. And of course, there weren't chapters then, so this is one long sentence. So he is just encouraging them, telling them their thumbs up with Titus, thumbs up with him. You've done this, you've done that, you're great, wow. And now let's go to verse 1 through 8 of chapter 8. Moreover, brethren, we do to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. I'll explain that. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. King James. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. So Paul's making a, a, a comparison between what's going on in Macedonia, which is just superb, to what he hopes will happen now in Corinth. He says, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministry to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Insomuch that we desired Titus that he, as he had begun, he would also finish in you the same grace also. There's a message here. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love to us, ready? See that you abound in this grace also. What grace? I'll tell you in a sec. He says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. In the previous chapter, the apostle had expressed his entire confidence 
from the obedience of the believers at Corinth to follow his advice on how to handle this problem. At the close of chapter 7, 1 through 16, he's calling them to diligence for some reason or another. We aren't really sure yet. But here in chapter 8, the purpose of his encouragement, and it's a cause that's near and dear to his heart, is their donating to the suffering in Jerusalem. Now, Paul has given several directions about this gathering that he has been taking. And a collection in, the, in 1 Corinthians 16, he mentions it. So, uh, this appeal is also given in Romans 15, 26. I'm going to take a collection up, saints. And we read what Paul says about it now in chapter 8. What we know is in this chapter, verses 10 through 11, this collection has not happened yet. It was talked about to the church at Corinth a while back when 1 Corinthians was written. It was talked about to the believers at Rome. It's mentioned in Acts. We have it mentioned, but the actual gather and deliver has not occurred, at least with the believers at Corinth. We don't know why, but in order that the contribution and the delivery would be made, and that it might be a big one, Paul seems to press here for them to give, do so freely, and to do it with the same diligence that they have shown obedience and faith and other graces. Now, many pastors today, and Christians sometimes, I guess, will use this chapter and the teachings here to promote the giving that churches request of others. And I suggest there are a number of reasons why this is, should not be so. This is not a proof text for a pastor to get up like Paul was doing then and get people to give. In fact, none of them are that they use, not one. But there's several reasons why we need to understand that. And here are the reasons that I don't think they're comparable. First, the church at Jerusalem was unlike any other in many ways that have ever been. I'm sure others have suffered. I'm sure they're suffering in North Korea, Christians and things. But in Jerusalem, it was really different and unique. Though the church Christians were pretty much Jews initially, converted. And if they were in Jerusalem, they were people who left the faith of 1,500 years under the law and are following this upstart rascal named Yeshua. And when a Jew saw that one of their own had converted to Yeshua, who these Christians were saying is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, who was hung on a cross and died, and now they're saying he resurrected, they hated them. They were putting them to death. They wanted them dead. So not only was that part of the problem, they would cut off family, they would cut off food, an opportunity to earn a living, The saints at Jerusalem were under the gun. So when you came out and were baptized publicly in Jesus' name in Jerusalem, you were telling the community, I don't care what you think, I know Jesus is Lord. So the suffering was palpable of the saints at Jerusalem. We don't see Paul saying, and also take up a gathering for the saints at Antioch or Alexandria or Ephesus or here or there. It's only Jerusalem that he does this for, okay? Uh, 
That's one reason. The second reason is this is an apostle who headed this up. He was one who was over that bride until Christ came to take the church. This was not a local elder taking it up. This wasn't a local deacon, an elder, presbyteros, and, 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 and pastor. They're all of the same ilk, just to let you know. There was no special calling there for the pastor and the presbyteros. They were one and the same when you look at the etymology of the words. So this was an apostle who came forward and said, I want this to be done. But he, he will tell us in a minute, I'm not doing this with any authority. I'm just doing this because I think we should. We started out to say we were going to do it. I've been to Jerusalem. I see the suffering they're under. They're saints. We should be equal together. Be equal in the administration of your goods to them. Okay? So we don't have that apostolic leadership. We have the ability to surreptitiously take it from the scripture like from here and use it from the pulpit on people, but that is not the same thing. So I, I draw a line there. Finally, the, those extenuating circumstances relative to the saints is unique to them too. There was a guy named Agabus when we went through our verse-by-verse -verse study of Acts, and uh, he predicted there would be a famine in Acts chapter 11 that would hit Judea. And uh, apparently, according to Claudius Caesar's records, there was a famine at that time. So in addition to all the other things that were heaped upon the Christians in Jerusalem, famine was one of them. So there was another circumstance that led Paul to say, Christians who are living in an area of abundance or relative abundance, and you have something to give, I am petitioning you to, to give it. The point is, I'm not so sure the letter of chapter 8 can be used by us today and the way it is used by, by some. In any case, Paul urges the believers at Corinth the following considerations, which uh, I'm going to summarize really quickly because they're kind of hard to understand in the King James. And then I'm going to go the verse by verse. Really quickly in verses 1 through 5, Paul appeals to the liberal example of the churches, the believers at Macedonia, who, though they were exceedingly poor, they had contributed with great cheerfulness and liberality on the subject. That's what he says. Uh, from their example at Macedonia, Paul seems to be moved to get Titus to lay the same type of thing on the church at Corinth and to finish the collection which had begun back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. At verse 7 and 8, Paul directs them to abound. That's how, those are the words he uses, abound in this not as a matter of a commandment, but excited by the example of the believers at Macedonia. And he does this by appealing to them by the love of the Savior and reminds them that though he's rich, he has become poor, that they might bound in, his, in imitating his example. These are things Paul brings up. He reminds them of their former intention to make a contribution, that they were once behind this, it dwindled because of whatever happened in Corinth, and Paul's writing these letters to fix it all again. And he sort of seems to be saying in verses 10 and 12, God is behind this if you're behind this. In verse 13 through 15, he assures them that it was not his wish to burden or oppress them. Uh, all that he desired was there was equality in the churches. This is not a governmental thing. This is not political. These are believers in extenuating circumstances, 
and he's asking the poor in one area to try to eke out something for the super poor in another. And to show them how much he was interested in this, he thanks God that he had put it into the heart of Titus too to engage in this. And in order to really secure it, to make sure there's no chicanery going on and trickery going on with the money, there was a third brother who was held in very high esteem in all the churches who was also being brought in to participate in this to make sure that there was no misuse of the funds. So I'm sure that was a temptation then. It's a temptation now. And, and so Paul has stepped away and let these other brothers do it. Um, he didn't want to be entrusted with it to the distribution himself. And so there's no suspicion. He pulled himself out and he said, these guys are going to handle it. That's 1621. And then verse 22 through 24, to secure the same thing even more, Paul had sent uh, the three brothers Titus, one other brother, and I'm guessing a third, I might have made a mistake on that, to go and do what they were going to do. So let's work through the passages quickly, and they will start in that King James to start to make a little more sense, as he says in first verse 1, Moreover, or in addition, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches at Macedonia. That phrase, we do you to wit, is another way of saying, we want you to know. We want you to observe. We want to inform you. We do to you, to wit, what has happened and been bestowed by the churches at Macedonia. Verse 2, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of, of their liberality. Now that's a mouthful of words to say, I'll read it from the RSV, from the minority text. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of liberality on their part. Just dump, dumb it down even more so that I can understand. Even when they were really poor and were being tried themselves with affliction, they had an abundant joy mixed with their extreme poverty, and it overflowed in this huge expression of generosity on their part. That would be the way I would suggest you understand that passage. Verse 3, and by the way, I had to say that to myself about eight times to make sure that that made sense because that, that one test, if you're not used to hearing or reading uh, sentences with big words, it can mess you up. Verse 3, for to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they are, were willing of themselves. So Paul had founded those churches and he had spent much time with them and was in a place to witness of the liberality that was coming out of them. Verse 4, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. In other words, they were begging us to do them this favor and take the, the relief they had provided for the saints and to take it and give it to them. They were asking us, please do this for us, okay? So Paul is saying that the saints at Macedonia had asked them to take part in the labor of conveying their donations to Jerusalem. It seems like Paul was unwilling to do this unless they really wanted it. He was leaving it in their hands to do what they wanted to do from the heart, 
That's really important. He was leaving it in their hands for them to do what they wanted to do from the heart. And that is so vitally important in my estimation in the faith today. Um, And we're going to talk about that in just a second with a line that he gives. So at verse 5 he writes, And this they did. But he says, Not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. When he says not as we hoped, that's not a disappointed thing. They didn't do it as we hoped. It's more like they did it in a superior way, more than we expected. They gave themselves to the Lord and they did his will. They didn't just respond because there was a a, a proclamation that there's a need. They really did it beyond what we had hoped or expected. All right, verse six. Insomuch that we desired Titus that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. The sense of that passage is we're encouraged by this unexpected success and liberality of the Macedonian saints. And we were surprised to the extent that this generosity went when we left them to their own devices. And encouraged by this, we requested Titus to go among you and finish this collection up to bring it to you and see what you would do from your heart among yourselves. Now, verse 7, we come to the direct pitch. Ready? Therefore, now we get the therefore. All I've said, as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, which is speaking probably the word by the Spirit, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us. I mean, that's five things, he says. As you abound in these five things, and there's more, right? See that you abound in this grace also. That's pretty direct. It's not a commandment. He says, I don't want you to do it unless you're behind it. I'm I'm not placing this on you as a burden. But he does say, see that you abound in this grace also. You have all these other graces that we have seen, faith and and knowledge and speaking in tongues and diligence in the faith. You've proven that by following my directions in 1 Corinthians toward the guy who got in trouble with his dad's wife. You followed, you've shown. Now I'm putting the pinch on you to come in and I want you to give. See that you abound in this grace also. After making that pitch, he steps back. So that's kind of a, that's pretty bold, right? He steps back and he says something so important in the context. I don't speak by commandment. Really important. So he's told them, this is what I I would like you to do. But I'm not talking by way of commandment. Now the word commandment is intole in the Greek. And we're going to see if this is intole or, or not in a minute. But by occasion of the forwardness of others. This is why I'm saying this so boldly. See that you abound in the grace. I've seen it happen in Macedonia. I've seen what can happen when people, when they turn themselves to the Lord, the Lord guides their will, they move forward in that. He says, see that you abound in the same way, but I'm not speaking by way of commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, ready? And to prove the sincerity of your love. In 1 Corinthians 7, 6, Paul gave 
advice to some couples about sexual abstinence. And he says, you know, you can be away from each other for a while, but don't go too long because Satan will come in and tempt you and, you know, who knows what can happen. But he adds, I don't say this by commandment. There are a number of places in Scripture where Paul will say, this is not God. This is me. Okay? So when people say every word in the Bible is Scripture, God-breathed, Paul himself says, this is not from God. Well, the word for commandment, as I said, is intele in the, in the record. But in 2 Corinthians here, it's uh, epitage. And it means, I don't say this with any authority. That's what he says. I have no authority to say this. Okay? So he completely removes himself as an apostle in what he's doing and says, I have no authority to do that, to do this. So that removes the idea of an apostle giving it to from the argument I made at the beginning. I am not authorized to implement this upon you. In other words, God has not told me that you should do this. It doesn't mean God wouldn't approve and it wouldn't mean that God doesn't want you to act generously. Maybe this was a circumstance where God said, let's let the saints decide what they want to do and see how they'll act given the opportunity without a commandment, without someone in authority telling them that they should do it. Paul is saying you're free to act in this matter. It's not by compulsion. I'm not going to even use my apostolic leadership on this. The fact is supported by the last line of the verse. Listen, he says, I don't speak it by commandment, and, uh, but I also speak it by the forwardness of others. Saints at Macedonia giving an example of it. Listen. And um, I also do it. You ready? He gives us this line. I also do it so that you can prove the sincerity of your love. That is huge. That is huge in the faith for Christians. The better Greek would say it's daka and it means to test the sincerity, nisios, the legitimacy, the truth of your agape love. To test is also uh, an equal word. To test or prove, one and the same. I'm doing this to test or to prove the love you say you have. Now, that's kind of guilt-driven in a way. It also leads to some, could lead to some behavior that's very religious. Well, Paul said to prove our love, you know, we got to prove our love. We better give more so that we compete with the Macedonian church. Or Paul, who says he doesn't do this by commandment, but he says he's doing it to prove our love. He needs to see that we love, right? So, He doesn't tell us who this love's directed to. He doesn't say to prove your love to God, to prove your love to Jesus, to prove your love to the saints at Jerusalem, to prove the love at all. It doesn't give us that, but he tells us to prove your love. But the question that I'm going to start off with in this topic is, when is it at all the same? When we love God, we will love men, when we love men, we will love God. Now, one of those 
principles I just shared are easy to prove. The other one's tough to prove. Let's work through them for a minute. First, those who love God will love their fellow man. That's easy to prove because it's a scripture. And that's 1 John 4.20. He says, If a man says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not, forget about the hate part, for he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Now, my wife Mary, she, uh, we talk about different passages and stuff. She's had trouble with this passage because she says it's much easier to love a being you can't see than it is to love the people you have to see and engage with. She makes a good, reasonable point. But the solution to that is in the word love. It's agapeo love that is selfless, unconditional, long-suffering, difficult love that is meted out in difficult circumstances. That's the love we're talking about. It's a love that only exists, in my opinion, and I'll argue with you, it only exists in difficulty. Okay? So, to John's point is to say that you love God with agape love, meaning you love him when times are tough to love God, when you don't have food to feed the family, you're sick, he's not healing, these things, to say you love God in his absence with agape love during difficult times, which is how agape love is seen, then, and you also don't, but you don't love your brother. If you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you don't really love God for he who loves not his brother in difficult times, who he can see and work things out with and express agape love, how could he or she love in a difficult time with God the person he hasn't seen? Do you get how, how he's saying that? It's not easy. But John is saying, if you say you love God with agape love, because that's the love that's used, and that means if you say you love God with agape love, you love him when it's difficult. But you don't love others when they're difficult. How could you possibly really love him when things are difficult if you can't love those who are in your presence who are difficult? Much easier to overcome problems and love and understand a person and get their side of it and work through that love when they're present than someone who just isn't answering your prayers, it seems, or lets you, your child die, or you never overcome your debt, or you never get a job. That's going to be hard to love, that one. But when you can learn to understand someone in your presence, and you can learn to love them with agape love, then you are truly going to be able to love the invisible one. And that is how you answer that difficulty of that, of that uh, passage, I think. So bottom line, if a person is able to actually love God with true agape love, whatever God does to them or allows to happen to them, I should say, whatever he says, whatever he commands, and they love God with unconditional love, they can love others. And that's what John means. Natural flow. But what about the second one? This is more difficult. That if we love our fellow man, we are loving God too. 
thus fulfilling the great commandment. And in this, we have to wonder, can the atheist, someone who denies or doesn't care or renounces the existence of God, possess, show love for their fellow man? Uh, And if they do, are they loving God? Does their love for their fellow man mean that they also love God? And uh, then everything would be good for them because the great commandment is to love God and love others. So if you're able to love others with agape love, is the atheist who denies the existence of God loving God indirectly? Perhaps, but I have to wonder about non-God love, I'll call it, without God in the picture, expressed by atheists as truly being agape love. And I, I have trouble with it for biblical reasons. Not my own opinion. My opinion says an atheist can love as well as I can. But to me, I think the atheist can love in storge love, in philos love, in eros love as good as I can. They can love their family like I love mine. They can love their friends like I love mine. They can love their lover like I love mine. But can they love with agape love, which is the only love we're really talking about here? And that's the question. Can a non-believer, atheist, a non-Christian possess agape love and live by it to the same extent as a believer? And I tend to believe the answer is no when the rubber meets the road. Remember, Scripture says we love him because he first loved us. And the fact that the fruit of the Spirit is agape love and that it is in order to possess the fruit of the Spirit, you must have the Spirit. And in order to have the Spirit, you have to be possessing faith in order to be born from above and possess that Spirit. Um, this is not to say the love an atheist feels is not legitimate toward family members and things like I said, but it is to suggest that agape love expressions that are brought on by the capabilities of the Holy Spirit in an individual believer that are by him in us doing what he can do and what we cannot do, I'm not sure that someone who doesn't possess the Holy Spirit can be as selfless as they should or as long-suffering as they could or as forgiving or as patient and the like. I'm not positive that in a non-believer, those attributes of Christ can exist without the presence of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, lacking the spirit of Christ, the non-believer will, I'm guessing in all probability, fail to love as Christ demands that we love with that long-suffering, patient love that exists in difficulty. Um, So in any case, back to the admission where Paul says that he has not written the things he wrote with authority, but so that they can prove the sincerity of their love. Over the years, uh, I've met a lot of people relative to ministry and probably more than the average person just because I've been in it for a while and we had a great footprint uh, in media for quite a while, still do, but, but when I was first exposed to meetings of people who knew us from like TV and stuff, the expressions of love were just, just through the roof. We love you. We love your ministry, you know. I couldn't have made it without you. We're behind you. Expressions of love. But as time moved on, 
you witness firsthand that words are cheap. They really are. And, and I mean, I'm at the point when I, I listen to people and thanks, that's very nice, you know, and just wait for the other shoe to drop. It might take an hour talking to me. It might take several weeks. They might have to get online and see some of the things I've said about certain theologies. That love will end, right? So what speaks love? Love's a verb. And so it's the actions. The words, they... That's what Paul's saying here. You claim, Corinthians, you follow and love Jesus. You have shown faith. You have shown diligence to God. I'm presenting you with this situation of helping the saints at Jerusalem to test your stated faith, to test that love that you claim to have. Now, in our day and age, I don't believe tests are required of Christians. I don't think there's any purpose for a a pastor or a church to test the uh, love a Christian has for God. Why? Because life itself is a one constant test on us as to whether we love God or not. I mean, I just think it was. For the bride then, with Paul, I think there was a purpose. And it was, you know, all the factors we won't go into. But today, I think by virtue of the fact that you get up, you go to work, you don't screw your neighbor or your neighbor's wife or husband, you try to be fair you try not to hate, you turn the cheek, you're patient, you're long-suffering with people who are ignoramuses. All of those verbs show, prove your love. That is what does it. The words mean schnitt. They don't mean anything. So, no pastor should test the love of his congregates Life proves what we are. In this particular case, Paul was asking the believers at Corinth to show or test their true love by giving to the cause for the saints then. Those who would or would not give proof and show their sacrifice and their unconditional selfless love for the believers at Jerusalem, or they would not What would prove their professions of love in this sense, uh, according to Paul? Not their professions, their actions, not professions. So I would suggest that every one of us as believers, we prove our own heart, our own love for God, our own love for each other through the same course, our actions. I'm not talking about this circumstance, giving money, especially to a church, you know, you give money to people who need it, that shows whether you feel that's love or not. And maybe it's love to hold back too. That's another thing about the spirit guiding. You know, when individual to individual, you may say, no, that's, I'm not sensing I should do that. And you don't. But it's also giving forgiveness when a person says, please forgive me. It's also giving patience when a person is not deserving of patience. We prove our Christianity every minute of every day. That's, I think that's why I'm so bloody humble because every minute of every day, I also prove myself a failure. I can say the words right, but to put one foot in front of the other in action of agape love for God and man, 
and in that we are seen for what we are. There's no getting around that. I love people say, I have a really good heart. I just can't, nah, you don't have a really good heart if you just can't stop whatever. I really love them, but, you know, guy walks from his family, goes off with the, you know, sorry, I usually try never to bring in, but Bezos is, is blowing my mind. I mean, trillionaire walking from his wife of 25 years for a lady next door who's had, you know, I don't know, seven different boyfriend engagements, husbands. I love my wife, I love my kids, but I left them and I just couldn't support them. I, I, you cannot equate love with actions that are antithetical to it. So that's what Paul is saying here. I'm giving you a chance to test or prove your love. And it's really, really radical because actionable love, agapeo love, the verb, Zero need for us to do that with each other in life to see what kind of Christian they are. The Spirit is doing that to each individual every single day. And every single individual is accountable. I am committed to that idea. That, I mean, it will be laid, laid bare what we decide to do. And, and every day... The actions choose what course we choose to take, or every minute, or every hour. So in each of us is this responsibility for our own salvation, so to speak, our own profession, our own relationship with the living God. Yes, he saved us. When we fail to love, that's been forgiven. When we choose self, it's been forgiven. But the decisions to love, the actions of love, are rewarded. So while the negatives are forgiven, the actions for love, the choice for love, are rewarded. And I think now it's rewarded through the resurrection. But that's a side issue too. So I think we'll stop there, leaving it off with Paul laying out this pitch for them to take the test on proving their love for it seems God and man. Question, comments. Thank you. <clears throat> Hi, Sean, it's Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, so the verse that mentions loving your brother who you can see is it possible that your brother could be the guy sitting next to you or the the person you work with sure or basically someone who's not your real uh, brother yeah your biological yeah, I'm brother sure. i'm sure that's what it means so it's loving actual people yeah, through our actions. See. And, you know, there's that saying, talk is cheap. And I'm, uh, I know all about that because I talk a lot. <laughs> and I love talking. It gives dopamine and endorphins. And, you know, I hope to be a public speaker or even preach the word one day like you. And it... Uh, I feel like it's important to recognize that we 
worship the the God that we worship, who is the Word. And it's uh, it's just it's kind of this big thought that I'm trying to grasp around that. Although talk is cheap, words still have such great power. They have the power to uplift and they have the power to tear down and destroy, but they have power to build up and grow and expand and create and, and to love. And um, our actions should back up our words if we do speak. I would hope so. But of course, actions do speak louder than words, right? I think so. So that's just the journey that we're all walking on in this earth. The interactions that we have, like I mentioned before the service, I don't believe in coincidence. Everything, everybody we interact with is part of God's divine appointments that he has for each one of us. Although we may have made that choice to go to the gym that morning or, or that night, and we happen to meet somebody there at the gym and have a great conversation that could be a great friend and so forth. So it's just very, um, uh, very important and interesting to really bring this um, topic of acting out our love that comes from God from within us. And I, I'm just so, uh, just so happy to hear this, this message preached. Praise God, brother. Thank you. Anybody else? And Brother Ray. My name is Ray. <clears throat> when we talk about agape love, um, does a parent have that kind of love towards his children? I'm sure sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, but sometimes but not. It, it's not unusual uh, to, to chastise your child mm -hmm. if you think they've done wrong. Sure. Okay, now let's, let's extend it to a neighbor or to an acquaintance. Uh, can we have agape love if we uh, judge and criticize an individual because he's doing something uh, wrong? Is that still agape love? I guess it would depend, one, on the motivation behind it, the heart behind the criticism, two, the way it's done and the timeliness of it. Because the way agape love is described in 1 Corinthians is patient, long-suffering, kind, gentle. The fruit of the Spirit are all those different things. So those have to be incorporated into that conversation with the neighbor. And if those elements are present, then sure. You may be helpful to tell him, listen, your hedge is way too big for the street and people can't see the kids running out from behind it. You need to cut it down. I know we've talked about it and you haven't done it, you know, but if it's done with love and patience and long suffering, and then yeah, agape love can exist within criticism. It has to, I would assume. God criticizes us and he is agape love. Yeah, okay, That's, that was my next question. Yeah. The Lord uh, extends agape love towards us as his children, but he still chastises us. Right. So... 
Yeah. Okay, I think we're in agreement. Praise God, brother. Because I don't want you on my bad side. <laughs> That's a beating waiting to happen. You know what's funny, you guys? Um, these Q&As, <laughs> we've done these since doing, being at the U. I got to just quote Richard Dutcher. He says, I sit here and I listen to your sermon, like on love, and I'm fired up. I'm fired up to love. Man, I just can't wait to just love like Jesus. And then you pass the microphone around and I just turn into a hateful person all over again. <laughs> because it requires patience and, and listening and, and, and not saying you guys did that today. I'm just saying that it is, that's why we called campus and we put the gears on the door. And we called this the factory because this is the place where we're learning to love at hand with difficult situations. And I just find it just... I mean, it's easy for me to smile at it, but when I'm involved in it, you know, it's not so fun. But I get it. And, and I just love the fact that we're able to engage with each other this way. And we let all people of all faiths and beliefs come in and engage with us. Because how else are, you, are we learning to practice that love that's demanded of us, right? So, love that. All right. Let's pray and get out of here. Lord, we, uh, we want to understand this love like Ray was talking about. You know, how to uh, judiciously uh, meet it out with people who need correction and need guidance and criticism at times. And can you be a Christian and be vocal about your uh, issues with another person's behavior and how to go about and do that? So we pray that your spirit will move us in that direction and, and help us to understand and help us to exit here and prove to you the faith that we have in our heart for you. And that is by choosing the actions of your love. And not easy. And don't let it be of our flesh. Not by commandment. Not by, you know, uh, something that causes us to fear. But to be respectful and in awe of who you are. And you loved us while we were yet sinners. Help us to love others who are in the same place. Including... Uh, uh, those who d despitefully abuse us or, or mistreat us. And that is when it really gets tough. And you know that, Lord. We pray for healing, strength, peace for the Stoke, Stoke family with a tragic loss of their dad and husband, David Stoke. God rest his soul. Pray for Eric overcoming a cold for the Lord to help provide us with what we need and desire. And we pray for everybody whose names we've ever mentioned from this pulpit. And for everybody we've ever prayed for, we include them in that big list, all of us together. This massive list of every name that we've ever prayed for, Lord. We lift them all up to you. Include them in this prayer today, that you'll remember them. You'll make yourself known to them. You will uh, guide them and you'll help them walk uh, with you in that peace and gentle love that you give all of us. So help us to exit now and be better Christians this week. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>